a really common explanation of paleo is like eating the way our you know paleolithic ancestors ate right eating the way we are genetically adapted to eat i take a very modern scientific approach so it's really about understanding the nutritional needs of the human bodies and then understanding what compounds and foods can potentially undermine health by interfering with gut health or immune health or hormone systems and basically taking foods and putting them on a scale right how much good stuff is in this food and how much bad stuff is in this food when it came to eating and dieting i couldn't i couldn't do it i interviewed over a thousand women and i said what did you do breakfast lunch and dinner what did you eat how'd you do it if you want to learn how to lose weight for life through intermittent fasting burn fat and break the bondage of food then this podcast is for you i'm chantelle ray author of waste away the chantelle ray way and each week i have different guests answering your questions remember the thoughts and opinions in this This podcast do not constitute medical advice. Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode and I'm so excited. We have Sarah Ballantyne from The Paleo Mom and I'm so happy you're with us. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So talk to us a little bit about your journey and what brought you to creating thepaleomom.com. So my journey is this confluence of being a really sick person. Mm-hmm. I eventually found out that I have four autoimmune conditions, um, but as I was going through it, those were like the last things to get diagnosed. So I was diagnosed with like irritable bowel syndrome and asthma and allergies and migraines and right, like the symptoms each got a diagnosis rather than the root cause, which I now know is Hashimoto's thyroiditis and fibromyalgia and two autoimmune skin conditions. And it was those things that were really driving all of my symptoms. So I had that that piece of just struggling through day-to-day life, being in uh, constant pain, having really low energy levels um, because um, uh, Hashimoto's has some interesting, right? Depression, anxiety as symptoms. And I definitely experienced those. I, I pretty much could check the whole list of Hashi symptoms from the time I was 10 on, but wasn't diagnosed until my late thirties. Awesome. <laughs> um, and so it was, it was that experience with, uh, I have, I was a medical researcher. So I uh, got a PhD in medical biophysics. And I, I am a very, um, I guess just like hardworking, ambitious person. I, I, workaholic would be a fair term to use, and I've I've always been that way. Um, and so I've always been the kind of person who sort of pushes through discomfort and um, gets very sort of singularly focused on a goal. So I finished a PhD in medical biophysics at the age of 26, and uh, did postdoctoral research for four years before uh, I had my first daughter, which was amazing, except uh, she, she didn't sleep and had colic. Um, so it was like this this extra little uh, uh, spice into the soup of my daily struggles that meant, okay, now I just, I can't, I can't do it, it's too much. And I ended up deciding to take time off of my research career Um, I was, you know, at the time, my excuses were, I'm going to focus on being a parent. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and it was so great. And I sort of gave myself all of those talking points. But really, um, I I recognized on a very deep level, I, I couldn't balance it anymore. But that was one of the best things I ever did, because that space, beyond helping me just survive early parenthood, which is a struggle no matter what you have on your plate, it, it gave me that space to start working on my own health. Um, 
And the first thing I did was lose um, a little over a hundred pounds. Wow. Low carb diet, which um, hell, I was uh, borderline type two diabetic at the time. I had metabolic syndrome. So I had a lot of health issues associated with obesity. Later discovering the obesity was driven by hypothyroidism, but I didn't know it at the time. Um, and so it, it was a weird thing to lose weight and get less and less healthy. So this was um, a, an experience that, it was the, the frustration of that that actually brought me to the paleo diet, the autoimmune protocol, because my skin got insane. So my two autoimmune skin conditions were, instead of being a few spots on my wrist, a few spots on my, my ankles, was like most of my body. I was having such bad GI symptoms, such bad migraines, um, such just ev like everything just felt like I was falling apart. I had really intense joint pain on a, on a daily level. And I had this whole, you know, I think when you're overweight, um, there's something about that experience where you, you're wearing this uh, sign that says I'm not healthy, right? And it, it just, there's this deep, really personal effect of that struggle that really challenges your sense of self-worth and self-esteem. And I, I had all of those emotional struggles wrapped up with weight. And I, I really very naively thought that if I, if I could just lose that weight and get to a healthy weight, my, my life would be magic, sunshine and rainbows. And it, it didn't, it, it, can, it actually was worse. I was more uncomfortable and my skin conditions were it was still wearing that sign <laughs> on my Skin and well, your skin is is beautiful. I'm looking at you now. And if you're just listening to this podcast, you can always watch it um, on our YouTube channel as well. So check that out because you can see how beautiful her skin is. She's glowing. <laughs> testament to healthy diet and lifestyle. But it was it was that um, that frustration that had me seek deeper for answers. And it really became the first time in my life where I actually applied my scientific background and my medical research experience to the problem of my own health. Like I finally went, Oh, yo, I know a lot of stuff. I could probably use that. <laughs> um, but that's, that really, it not only helped me find the, the answers for my own health, but it has really formed the basis now of everything that I do because part of finding my own health was finding this like different, um, this just different like raison d'etre right this different reason to 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 uh, live my life which was to help other people find that information because i struggled with my health for like 25 years before i started you know finding those answers and it would have completely changed the trajectory of my life to have that information 10 15 20 25 years earlier and so i really see it as my privilege that I get to educate people and keep this education really rooted in science because I, I as a scientist, value scientific evidence at an extremely high level. So I, I keep everything that I do rooted in scientific evidence and try to give people that broad education about diet and lifestyle choices to empower them to make better choices, but also to give them the information they need to troubleshoot and refine and individualize for their own challenges. So talk to people. I think a lot of people who are listening on this podcast now really understand what the paleo diet is, but I wanted you to talk about how the autoimmune protocol is different from the paleo diet and how those two are different. 
So my view of the paleo diet is maybe a little bit different than what other people may have heard. So a really common explanation of paleo is like eating the way our you know, paleolithic ancestors ate, right? Eating the way we are genetically adapted to eat. I take a very modern scientific approach. So it's really about understanding the nutritional needs of the human body. So what nutrients do and how much of those nutrients we need and what foods have those nutrients. And then understanding what compounds and foods can potentially undermine health by interfering with gut health or immune health or hormone systems and basically taking foods and putting them on a scale, right? How much good stuff is in this food and how much bad stuff is in this food and a food that is an obvious, like tons of good stuff, nutrients and not very much bad stuff isn't is a win. That's a yes food and a food that doesn't have much nutrients to offer and potentially a high amount of problematic compounds is a no food. And that's, that's how I view both paleo and the AIP. The difference is where you draw the cutoff. So there's, there's all of these foods in between that have some compelling nutrition, but also a higher level of problematic foods. So if you are a robust, healthy person, you don't have autoimmune disease risk genes, you're going to be able to tolerate more potentially problematic compounds for the sake of those nutrients than somebody who has those health challenges, who has an immune system that's already very easily triggered by environmental exposures, right? So if you're someone with autoimmune disease, you're just more sensitive. So it, it's just the difference is where we make that cutoff in terms of um, whether or not that food is a yes food or a no food. Mm, I love that. And that is, you know, one of the things I talk about in my, my book is that you don't want to deprive yourself because when you deprive yourself, you are that's just a recipe for gaining weight because you're like, oh my gosh, I can't have this. But there's a difference. I, I have a little section in my book called, um, my. I have the second edition of my book coming out. And what I talk about is called uh, Don't Deprive, But You Still Want Discernment. It's called Discernment, Not Deprivation. So like for me, if I want a cookie, if I know that if I eat this gluten cookie that's got tons of chemicals in it, I'm going to feel terrible. But if I want a cookie, make a, you know, a, a paleo cookie that maybe has almond flour in it or whatever, I'm going to eat that cookie. I'm going to satisfy my craving of the cookie, but also feel like a million bucks. That's discernment. And now I'm not depriving myself because I'm still having that cookie. But I also know that for my body, how do I feel after I eat this? I love that because I think that um, a lot of people come into paleo or the AIP from this like challenge mentality. So we're going to do a, a, a three week or a 30 day challenge and I'm going to force myself, right? We're muscling it through and that's diet mentality. That's the lose 10 pounds to get into the dress for the wedding type mentality. And that doesn't help us be healthy. So I really see paleo and the autoimmune protocol as tools for lifelong health. And of course, it doesn't help you be healthy for the rest of your life if you don't follow it. So a huge part of, I think, both of those templates is addressing human nature, sustainability, right? So recognizing that we like to celebrate with food. We like to nurture our social bonds with food. We like to nurture ourselves with food and allowing space for that, I think, is really important while also addressing behavioral challenges around food uh, while addressing addiction <laughs> around food. And as somebody who comes from a history of food addiction and binge eating disorder, like I, I really resonates with me 
of trying to nurture that piece of me that really needs to feel loved with flavor um, and allowing that space to exist, but not allowing it space to be dysfunctional and detrimental to my mental health. Mm, that's great. And I love your website. It has so many amazing things. Um, but one of the things I saw that you talked about on your website was called three phases to AIP. Can you talk about that? So the autoimmune protocol is really designed to be a self-discovery process. So it uh, eliminates the foods that are most likely to be problematic for autoimmune disease, floods the body with nutrients, and it incorporates a lifestyle focus as well. So it's a very holistic approach. But the idea is that it's not supposed to be a life sentence. So the idea is that we uh, get to heal but then we also get to understand our own body's thresholds, our own body's triggers, because there are foods that are going to work for some people and not work for others. And if we just cut them all out, well, maybe that food works really well for you. Like you're missing out. And I, it's not about deprivation. Um, and so part of the process of the autoimmune protocol is something called the reintroduction phase. So the elimination phase is like, you know, go all in, strict. Um, it's designed to maximize healing. Um, the reintroduction phase is designed to test your tolerance to foods that are eliminated and really learn about your body. And then there's like a maintenance phase. So what happens is as you've gone through this reintroduction phase, you get to a point where you have learned what your body tolerates and what it doesn't. And hopefully also what it tolerates in different situations. So um, when you're stressed, your tolerance for suboptimal foods mm. typically goes down uh, because your stress response magnifies an immune response to a trigger. So understanding that give and take, okay, I'm stressed or I'm fighting off a cold. I need to be a little bit more discerning with my diet right now uh, versus you know, hey, I've been getting enough sleep. You know, I'm feeling really great. I've been moving a lot. I can uh, indulge now. Um, and so really understanding our own bodies is, is such a critical part of the process. And once you get there, you end up at something that is usually uh, somewhere between paleo and autoimmune protocol. It might include some foods that are not even con traditionally considered paleo. So the autoimmune protocol makes room for reintroducing foods like lentils or gluten-free grains. Um, so it really is about, about uh, respecting bioindividuality and respecting that the, the best diet for each of us is, is potentially going to look a little bit different. And so giving us a, a protocol for discovering what that is. Great. So Walk me through, I ask everybody, you know, what do you eat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner? What does a day in the life of Sarah look like? So talk to us about yesterday. Like, what did you eat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner? So um, I, I start four days a week. Um, I start off my day at the gym, and I don't like to eat before I go to the gym. Um, I, I tend to, I do pretty hard workouts, so um, I tend to get quite nauseous if I've got food in my stomach, and I just can't. I'm at the gym early enough that I can't get up early enough to have a good two hours to digest before I'm there. So I usually have coffee before I go um, and I blend collagen peptides, uh, goat milk, ghee, and um, some mushroom powders into my coffee in the morning. So I, it is a coffee with some heft to it. Um, so let me ask you, do you, so when you do, 
your ghee, you do fine if you have goat milk ghee versus cow's milk ghee. Is that right? Your body? And, and that is something that I discovered about myself through reintroductions, that I'm incredibly sensitive to cow's dairy products. Um, and I don't do well with um, goat protein, so like goat cheese I don't do well with, but goat milk fat that is, right, that ghee is uh, virtually protein-free, not quite. It's 99.7-ish percent fat, so there's that 0.3% that is protein. Um, but I have discovered that goat milky works really well for me. And I really like the flavor in my coffee. I remember the first time I had it thinking it tasted really strange. But then by the time I was done the cup, I was like, yeah, strange. Good. This stuff's awesome. So I have a lot of people who say they do great on goats, like goat cheese, um, but they can't have regular cheese. Have you heard that a lot of people, they're fine with goat's cheese, but not? And the reason actually is in the structure of the casein molecule. So goat is what's called A2 dairy, which refers to beta casein. And it's just a slightly different structure than what most cow's milk is A1. And A1 we know is um, not as good for the gut microbiome. It's potentially inflammatory. There's some links even maybe with cardiovascular disease risk, but it's also much higher in allergenicity. So it can create allergens to dairy much more easily. So that's why a lot of people who can't do cow's milk can do goat or sheep or camel or donkey. And it's because the, the casein molecule is slightly different. A2 casein is uh, linked with a better gut microbiome. It's linked with reduced inflammation. Like it, it does seem to have a very different health profile than A1. And how do you feel? Like, do you do you say, hey, every once in a while, I'll do goat's cheese? Or do you just say, no, I just don't do it at all? No go for me. Um, so for me, different foods cause different triggers or different symptoms so and different lengths of time. So for example, um, my reaction to gluten cross-contamination is typically six to eight hours delayed, but then I am violently ill. <laughs> it's like food poisoning. Both, both sides, it's awful. And it's, uh, you know, three, four days before I can eat again. It's, it's really intense. Mm. Um, dairy, if I was to have cow's dairy, I get a crippling migraine within about 10 to 15 minutes. So it's a different length of time and a different symptom. Um, with tomatoes, peppers, um, I get joint pain. It feels like someone threw shards of glass in between all the small bones in my um, feet and hands. So I have, and that's usually the next, I wake up the next morning with that. Um, and that will last three to four weeks. <laughs> and I've had at one time where I was, uh, I was, I was given something that, um, I had the whole conversation. Okay. I, but I can't, I can't do nightshades. So there's no red pepper, cayenne, paprika. I went through the whole list cause I'm a very informed, uh, a consumer of food and nope, nope, none of those things, none of those things. And I put it in my mouth and it was instantly incredibly spicy. Um, this was at a conference. I spat it out and I said, like, why is it so spicy? And it was like, oh, well it has chilies. So I said, but I, I said, I said chili pepper. Oh, I, it was, um, the, one of the most frustrating, uh, experiences because I felt like I had been advocating for myself and was still undermined with poor information that I had joint pain after that. I didn't even swallow the mouthful and I had joint pain for about three months after that. Like it really triggered a full autoimmune flare. So, um, so for me, those are foods that are never a go because it, there's never a convenient time to have, like there's no amount of ice cream that is worth a migraine. Let's just 
It's not, it's never, it's never an okay trade. Um, there's no amount of baguette or croissant that is worth being on the toilet all night for a couple of days, right? Like it's, it's for me, it's that cost benefit analysis is really, really obvious. Um, I um, have other foods that um, I will eat in a restaurant. So I, I can do a little bit of potato. That's the only nightshade I can do. And if it's once in a while, I'll be fine. But if I started to have it more like a couple times a week, then I would start to notice joint pain. And those, um, I call them slow build reactions, are some of the harder ones for people with autoimmune disease to identify, especially when it's a food we really want to work. Like I really, I really like potatoes. Like I, that's really want to have those in my life. And so to be able to admit that if I have them more than once a week, I really noticed the effects was, was challenging for me just on an emotional level. Um, and I've had foods that, you know, I've been doing this for eight years now. So I have had foods that didn't used to work for me and my, I've healed enough now that I've been able to completely reintroduce them. So eggs, for example, used to give me really bad acne. Um, and now I'm able to eat eggs with no effects, you know, whatsoever. So um, there is part of this that is identifying foods that are problematic and understanding how they're problematic and what quantities they're problematic and what frequency they're problematic. But then also recognizing that that doesn't mean we can't test it again down the road if it is going to be a problem food for us, because there's a lot of the reaction to foods that is reliant on immune regulation and gut health in general. So as we do sort of continue to heal um, and dial in things like nutrient density and all the lifestyle factors, um, that can actually um, reduce the reaction to near zero to some of these foods. So let's talk a little bit more about the the difference between the paleo and the AIP diet. Um, so let's talk about some of those differences of exact things. So like, for example, on the paleo diet, someone would say, you know, eggs are fine. Right. Eggs would be out on the AIP diet. But what I'm hearing you say is now you've kind of tested eggs and, and you do fine with eggs now. Right. So eggs would be eliminated during the elimination phase of the AIP. They're actually, uh, especially egg yolks are an early reintroduction. So the problematic compounds in eggs are in the egg whites. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a compound called lysozyme and it's just very good at getting into our bloodstream, but it also um, binds with other proteins inside the gut, especially bacterial cell wall proteins, which can be inflammatory. So it acts a little bit like um, like a, a little like backpack and it's like, Hey, everyone hop on, we're going into the body. And that if you have an immune system that is already, um, overstimulated that addition of bacterial cell wall proteins, they're inflammatory. And so they can drive inflammation even higher. And this happens in all of us. The, the difference is if you're, if you have a healthy gut and a well-regulated immune system, you can handle a little bit of inflammatory stimulus without it driving immune activity into overdrive. If you have autoimmune disease, you just can't. So um, that substance is problematic in the whites, not the yolks. Um, yolks are like whole eggs are eliminated because um, yolks have a fairly high allergy rate. And it's also quite challenging to isolate the yolk 100% from the white. Um, but egg yolks are a very early reintroduction because they're incredibly nutrient dense. I mean, they're some of our best sources of some B vitamins. So um, all of the early reintroductions, right, the things that I 
would encourage people to try first are all the things that have the most nutrients to offer us and the lowest probability of being problematic. And then we build up the risk scale. Hey guys, we absolutely love getting your questions into the podcast, but we're also interested in your journey. So if you've started intermittent fasting and have some success or even struggling a little bit, we want to hear about it. Email me your intermittent fasting stories to Chantel at ChantelRayWay.com. Now back to the show. So tell us, so before you, you eliminated eggs in the beginning, what did you feel like there was something in the eggs that when you ate an egg before you were like, mm, I don't feel great? Did you have a reaction or no, you you reintroduced it? Yeah. So even I would say even when I went paleo before the autoimmune protocol, I had no idea that these foods were so problematic for me. It wasn't like I felt crummy every time I ate bread, um, but I wasn't healthy. Right. So I wasn't I didn't have timed reactions to when I ate. Um, I had migraines a few times a week, but there was never any like obvious, oh, I, and I'd, uh, of course I did because I just had cheese. Like none of that was something that I could identify. And it was likely because everything was like so revved up that um, when your immune system is so overstimulated like that, you end up... Um, losing that one-to-one correspondence, right? So it starts to become much more stochastic, much more like just random and a little bit unpredictable. And I didn't know that those foods were so problematic until I cut them out and then ate them. I mean, gluten, I never ate intentionally. The first time I was exposed to gluten, um, I never challenged it. Instead, I accidentally consumed it and then got incredibly ill. Um, And so... Um, and so I think that's really common. And I think people will uh, follow a paleo diet or autoimmune protocol. They'll go to challenge something and they'll have this really exaggerated reaction compared to how they felt before. And the, the very common interpretation of that is like, oh, paleo made me gluten intolerant, right? Like, and you hear that fairly frequently and that's not actually the case. It uncovers an intolerance that's already there. And this is why allergists use elimination and challenge diets as a diagnostic tool. Um, It's actually the gold standard for identifying food sensitivities and food allergies better than skin prick tests or blood tests. It it is the gold standard. And most, a, a good allergist will always confirm Um, other testing results with elimination and challenge. And the reason is our immune systems have these two different sides. So we have all of these cells that are responsible for the reaction. They're the cells that attack a virus uh, or that kill a cell that's infected, or also that create antibodies that drive an allergic reaction or food intolerance. And then we have these other cells whose job it is, is to constrain the whole system. And so they're the ones who, once you've defeated that flu virus, turn off the immune system. Otherwise, Every, you know, you get sick once and you'd have systemic inflammation for the rest of your life. They're the ones who literally just keep, keep, keep the roof on the house. And when it comes to food allergies and food intolerance, the cells that restrain the system die off faster than the cells that are responsible for the reaction. So when you um, do an elimination diet and you cut that food out for it's typically two to four weeks is what an allergist would do. The autoimmune protocol, it would be say one to three months before you try any reintroductions, you hit that window where you still have those cells that drive the reaction, but not as many that help constrain the system. 
And so you do actually react in a more magnified way, but in a way that is uncovering the reaction that was always there, rather than in a way that created that reaction from scratch. So it is a really powerful tool because it, it makes it very clear that that food was not doing us any favors beforehand. Um, and it makes it very, very hard to uh, ignore that data. Gotcha. So for you, I, I heard you talk about potatoes. How do you do with sweet potatoes? So white potatoes, you don't do well, but sweet potatoes, you do fine? Yeah, it's a completely different family of vegetable. Um, so sweet potatoes are not eliminated on the autoimmune protocol. The autoimmune protocol is not low carb. I would argue that paleo is not low carb. I would argue that it's, say, moderate carb, uh, whole food sources of carb, healthy carbohydrates, but it's not low carb, it's not low fat, it's not low protein, and it's not high any of those things either. It's very balanced macronutrients. So sweet potatoes are a gut microbiome superfood. Our, our gut bacteria love sweet potatoes. Um, and those slow burning carbohydrates are really, really good for hormone regulation, for uh, improving sleep quality. So things like sweet potatoes, cassava root, uh, winter squash, um, green plantains, technically a fruit, but tastes like a starchy vegetable. Those things are, you know, they're basically a food group on the autoimmune protocol. So nightshade vegetables, for people who don't know, are tomatoes, eggplants, peppers, and white potatoes. What do they do for people? Like when, when someone says, okay, I don't do well on a nightshade vegetable, what, what happens to you when you eat them? And what do you see other people? Like what are the common symptoms they get? So I think um, symptoms of autoimmune disease uh, vary. There's some commonalities, right? So for example, fatigue and either joint or muscle pain are extremely common autoimmune disease symptoms. And those are definitely my earliest symptoms when I'm having a reaction to a food. But a symptom could be basically any symptom of your disease um, or any GI symptom or any skin symptom or any neurological symptom. So like a headache, um, mood issues, trouble sleeping would fall under that banner. Um, I would say in the people that I interact with, joint pain is a really, really common symptom for, for nightshades in particular, but also that's just a really common autoimmune symptom or symptom of high levels of inflammation. So I'm not sure that it speaks to nightshades specifically so much as it speaks to their inflammatory uh, capacity. And nightshades are really interesting because they are definitely one of those like 50-50 foods. They have some really compelling nutrients, right? We all talk about, oh, but the lycopene in tomatoes, right? They're, they're, they're really nutrient dense. They've got lots of, especially B vitamins, like really great uh, nutritive value while also having several compounds that are inflammatory. Uh, so they have um, glycoalkaloids, which drive, they basically drive immune activity. They're also not very good for gut health. Um, they also have uh, lectins, um, specifically a, a subclass of lectins called agglutinins, which act as adjuvants, which is anything that ramps up the immune system. And there's actually two compounds in tomatoes that have been investigated in the research for use in vaccines for driving immune activity because the, the way the vaccine works is dead, right, polio virus. Because <laughs> we don't want to give you real polio. That defeats the whole purpose, uh, along with some kind of compound to make sure that your body produces antibodies against this dead virus. So that's that compound that drives the immune system is called an adjuvant. So both uh, tomato lectin, which is an agglutinin, and alpha-tomatine, which is in tomatoes, have been investigated and shown to be pretty good adjuvants. They haven't been added to vaccines. But I think that that, that data to me is, is a very, very strong reinforcer that 
these are compounds that if you have an immune system that is easily triggered are going to be really, really problematic. And if you have an immune system that's accidentally learned how to attack your own body, that means every time you consume those foods, you're going to be driving antibody production of whatever is going on in your body at the time. For me with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, that means my immune system always has the capacity to create antibodies against my thyroid. So anytime I eat those, that is something I can expect to happen. Now, are you taking any kind of thyroid medication yourself right now? Yes. So um, I think it's really important to emphasize that the autoimmune protocol is not a substitute for conventional medicine. Um, ideally, it's, it's most compatible with a functional medicine or integrative medicine approach, but it is a complementary approach. So it is diet and lifestyle that can be used hand in hand with judicious and informed use of conventional interventions. And the goal isn't always drug-free. So ideally, you'd be able to get off of any disease-modifying drugs. Those increase lifelong risk of cancer. They're not awesome. Um, you'd be able to get off any pain medications, right? So NSAIDs um, are not great for our gut health. Um, so you'd ideally be able to get off of those and off of any steroids, right? So ideally, you'd be able to get off of those things. But um, you know, for me, my symptoms started when I was 10. I was diagnosed when I was 37, 30, I think 37, if I, I'm terrible at keeping track of time. Um, and so I had 27-ish years of my immune system attacking my thyroid gland before I really understood what was going on. So for me to expect that my thyroid gland could ever achieve full function, that it doesn't have permanent damage to it is, um, you know, an, an unrealistic expectation. And, um, Given that also thyroid hormones help regulate the immune system, it was one of the most important things that I learned through my healing journey was that I actually do have Hashimoto's thyroiditis because the addition of thyroid hormone to my regimen actually really accelerated my healing. So I think, um, you know, I, there's plenty of cases of people being able to reduce their medication. There's the occasional case of people being able to go off. But I think it's important to emphasize that there is no true cure for autoimmune disease. So um, diet and lifestyle can put disease into remission, but you, once, once your body's learned the ability to attack itself, it never actually forgets. So it could be triggered by a stressful event, right? A death in the family or something like that. It could be triggered by an infection. It could be triggered by going out and partying late one night. Like it's, it, it is always going to underlie decisions for the rest of our lives. Um, and medication-free isn't always the right goal. So um, especially medications that support hormone systems that have been damaged, right? If you were a type one diabetic, that's the immune system attacking the pancreas. The chances of getting full pancreatic function back are relatively low. I mean, there's anecdotally, there's examples of this out there, but I would say that's the exception, not the rule. And the chances of you continuing to need insulin um, at least at some level, are really high. And that's not a failure. That doesn't mean you didn't AIP hard enough, right? It's, it is the reality of the situation of there's, you know, scar internal scarring. Our, our organs have been attacked by our immune systems for at least some period of time before we got diagnosed and before we figured out this complementary approach to healing. And um, it's not always possible to regenerate an organ to the level of normal function. And can you tell us, will you share with us what kind of thyroid medicine you're on and what dosage you are on personally? Um, uh, yes and no. Um, so I really make a, um, 
I make a point of not sharing the supplements and medications that I'm on because I work with a functional medicine specialist and um, I understand the um, desire to, if that works for someone else, it must work for me. And I really want to discourage people from taking a pill without medical supervision. So I really want to encourage people to work with a functional medicine specialist. I will tell you that I went through four formulations of thyroid meds before I found one that worked for me. And um, it was about a four year process of inching up the dose, giving up, going to another formulation. We always have to pull back, inching up the dose, right? Testing every four to six weeks, making a change. And I did that with my functional medicine specialist. Um, And that was, that was really fantastic because I take something that is now uniquely formulated by a compounding pharmacy for me. And that is one of the reasons why working with a functional medicine specialist is um, generally superior than working with a, say a conventional endocrinologist for this because they will take the time to do that high level of tinkering. Now, let me ask you, are there any foods that you feel like, so I'll give you an example for me, you know, so for the, the AIP diet or for the paleo diet, they say, you know, try to eliminate grains such as quinoa or legumes such as green beans. So there's two foods that I can eat that I just feel like I have no inflammation. I feel like a million bucks. So one of them for me is quinoa. I can eat quinoa all day long and I feel like a million bucks and I can eat green beans and, um, I don't have any inflammation and I feel like a million bucks. Are there any foods like that for you that you say, hey, I know that, you know, in general, this diet says this causes inflammation, but for you personally, it doesn't. Yeah, there's a few actually. Okay, will Um, you share those? Yeah, yes, this I will share. Uh Uh, So everyone who follows paleo diet is really like fanatical about it. Close your ears right now because (laughs) this is going to be hearsay. Um, So... Uh, I do great on corn. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a grain. Um, I only uh, buy heirloom corn, organic. Um, so that may be why. And I still avoid things like corn syrup. But I can do, uh, I make homemade popcorn or say corn on the cob. Um, and my whole family does well on corn. Um, and that's become not a Right, not a foundational food, but a, I would say, regular treat food in our house. Um, I do well on white rice. Um, and I, I, always, um, I always cook it in broth, which increases the nutritive value. And I always eat leftover rice. So rice is one of those foods that um, cooking it and then cooling it increases the resistant starch content of it, which lowers the glycemic index, but it's also a really great food for our gut microbiome. So it's a food that has much more compelling value after being cooked and cooled. So also I always, I'll make rice. If I know I want it for dinner, I'll make it in the morning and stick it in the fridge and then we'll have it reheated for dinner. Um, and I've been playing with, so I'm, I'm working on a new book on the gut microbiome and I'm not bringing any dietary Um, template into that book. So I'm really looking at what does the research say about what our gut bacteria love and what they don't love. And I'm trying to basically build an optimal diet from the ground up from the perspective of the gut microbiome. And so there are some other foods that I've started playing with and I'm, I'm still in this like 
the just evaluation process. And I think it seems to be going well, but I'm, I'm not ready to be like, yes, this food is awesome for me. Um, but there, I've been playing with gluten-free oats and with lentils um, as foods that are really great for our gut bacteria, traditionally would not be considered paleo or AIP. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm, I wouldn't, I would put it on the AIP reintroduction list for sure, but certainly not, you know, these are foods that do have a higher capacity to drive inflammation for a lot of people. So it'll never get added to the elimination phase. But um, those have been foods that have been really compelling for me to play with because our gut bacteria basically control everything about our bodies. Um, They're highly involved in autoimmune disease activity, but also cancer and cardiovascular disease and obesity and diabetes and chronic kidney disease and mental health challenges. And like, it's, they're, they're really, they control just about every process going on in every cell. So, um, so that's been really interesting to me to, to play with those. Um, And I would say actually, what's been really fun about writing this book I'm, I probably will be able to wrap up this fall, um, is that as you go through all this, this information, you basically end up at like a paleo plus type diet. Oh, I like that. Rice, gluten-free oats, uh, lentils, peas, um, and uh, garbanzo beans. Mm. I love that paleo plus. That's great. Um, so I think the key is, is for people to say, to ask the question, how do I feel when I eat this food? It's not that I'm like following paleo or following AIP, like really making it your own and saying, how does my body respond when I eat this and how do I feel? But not only that, the key is the amount. So like, you know, it's like there's certain foods, like if I only eat a small amount of it, goat cheese is a perfect example for me. When I eat goat cheese, if I eat a small amount of it, I feel okay. If I start eating too much of it, I start not feeling good. And so there's certain things that your body can tolerate in small doses. But when you start making it, you know, overeating on that that uh, particular food, that's when you go, oh, great, my body's not responding. But there's some things where you go, hey, I'm not going to deprive myself because eating small amounts of it, my body somehow processes in it and it's fine. I think part of that has to do with um, not just the amount of the food, but what that food's displacing. So sometimes it's not about, so a healthy diet is not about what you eliminate, right? That's that's not what what makes a diet healthy or not healthy. It's what you actually eat that makes the diet healthy. And I would argue that there's universal truths about a healthy diet and that there's a variety of different ways to implement those universal truths so that they describe the healthy diet. So I would argue the most important thing about a diet is nutrient sufficiency. So we're actually getting all of the nutrients that our bodies need for all of the chemical reactions that are happening in every cell in every moment. And you can formulate a nutrient sufficient diet in a variety of different ways, right? So there's, there's different ways that you can put these foods together. And, um, and there's even, right, there's ways that you could implement paleo or AIP that wouldn't reach nutrient sufficiency. So I would, that's one of the reasons why uh, nutrient sufficiency, nutrient density is part of all of my educational resources, because I think it's really fundamental. So when we overdo one food and it makes, starts to make us not feel well, it's often because we're eating that food to the exclusion of something else that our body really needs. So sometimes it's not just about the, the volume of that particular thing, but about the overall balance in our diets. Mm, that's great. 
Well, we're about out of time, so I'm only going to ask you one of our listener questions. We'll ask the rest of them at another time. But this is from Mimi in Boulder. Uh, It says, I've been a vegetarian for 15 years. Is it possible to also go paleo as a vegetarian? Um, Okay, so I think there's two different interpretations of Mimi's question. One is, can I transition to a paleo diet as a vegetarian? And the answer for that is like an easy yes. Uh, The paleo community is full of what people sort of refer to as reformed vegans and reformed vegetarians. The big challenge there is when you're vegetarian or vegan for a long time is you actually downregulate your stomach acid. So you don't need as much stomach acid to digest plant foods um, as you do to digest animal foods. And that is why uh, if you've been vegetarian or vegan for a long time and you eat animal foods, it can feel really heavy in your stomach, like it's hard to digest. And so a really good tool for transition, checking with a healthcare provider before you take anything in pill form uh, to take digestive support supplements um, to help uh, go through that process. And also note that fish is much easier to digest than other animal foods. So that can also be a really good sort of bridge food from vegetarian or vegan to paleo. Um, The other interpretation of that question though is like, can I do vegetarian paleo? And um, I, when I talk with people who, who um, want to be vegetarian for sort of moral and ethical reasons, Um, there's a, there's a broader conversation to have about, um, humane treatment of animals and sustainability and the environmental impact of how we raise our food. And the paleo community has really embraced the local food movement, right? That part of eating grass fed beef is that it's healthier, but another huge part is that it's much more humane. It's much better for the environment. The carbon footprint's much lower. So there's these other bigger than us as individuals reasons to, to go that route. Um, so, so part of it is having that conversation. The other part is, again, sort of steering towards a pescatarian paleo. So the, the challenge with a vegetarian paleo, I love all the vegetables that that includes, right? So I, I consider paleo to be a plant-based diet. It, our plates should be two-thirds to three-quarters, a variety of vegetables hitting all the colors at every meal. Mm. However, um, there are, it's important to recognize there's nutrients we get from plant foods that we can't get from animal foods and nutrients we get from animal foods that we can't get from plant foods. Mm. So animal foods can just be seafood. We can, um, especially shellfish is basically as nutrient dense as organ meat. So we can actually um, hit that nutrient sufficiency, primary focus of any healthy diet with a pescatarian implementation, it's a little bit more challenging if like eggs and let's say A2 dairy products are the only animal foods you're consuming. It's, um, there's still some animal nutrients that uh, are really easy to miss out on doing it that way. So whichever is Mimi's actual question there, um, you know, I hope that gives her some guidance. Um, it's a little bit more challenging when people are vegetarian for religi- religious reasons. It's a, sort of a different conversation, and that's where you can start looking at supplements to fill in the gaps. Um, but if it's sort of moral and ethical reasons, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of roadway in the middle where we can find a, a nice happy medium. 
Well, you guys have to go check out her website. It's thepaleomom.com. She's got some amazing recipes on there. I was looking at your cookie recipes, and those look amazing as well. And there's just so much great, great information. So check out thepaleomom.com. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you again for having me. And if you have a question that you want answered, go to questions at chantelrayway.com. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey guys, thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, it would mean the world to us for you to leave a review on iTunes to get this podcast out to others that may have the same questions that you do. And as always, if you have a question that you want answered, email those to questions at chantelrayway.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.